Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, harm against minors, and racism. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. She's billed as the first black female serial killer. If you believe the hype, Clementine Barnabet terrorized the South with an axe in hand and a group of devoted followers eager to emulate her. But there's also a chance she was just a teenager living with severe mental illness. Then again, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. The thing is, when it comes to Clementine Barnabet, we can't take anything for granted. If we listen to those who suspected her of murder, she was the leader of a sacrificial cult. If we believe her own words, she was a serial killer who murdered as many as 35 people in a two-year span. But there are those who think her story doesn't add up and that the real killer or killers were never caught. Which leaves us to ask, what is the truth exactly? Given the nature of this story and Clementine's fate, answering that question isn't as easy as you might hope. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we'll dive into the life of Clementine Barnabet, a teenager who lived in Lafayette, Louisiana in the early 1910s. First, we'll explore her role in the case of violent axe murders that plagued the area. Then we'll discuss the theories that swirled around her and whether or not she actually committed the crimes she copped to. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. November of 1909 saw the first attack in a string of gruesome axe murders that terrorized Louisiana and the surrounding areas for years. 
There are many theories about who was behind the various murders, and we'll discuss some of them a little later, but we're going to start with the most well-known, and perhaps the most controversial, that a teenage girl was responsible for all of the bloodshed. Before we get going, though, I want to make it clear that even to this day, we're not sure how much of the following is true, if any of it at all. But if it is, things really got going on the streets of New Iberia, Louisiana. On a night in late 1909, five teenagers roamed the streets, you know, as teens do. They were about 20 miles away from their hometown of Lafayette, but that didn't faze them, especially not Clementine Barnabet, the unofficial leader of their group. Clementine came from a poor family with a bad reputation. Her father was a known thief, and both Clementine and her younger brother, Zephyrin, seemed to have inherited some of his more unsavory tendencies. Or at least, that's what their neighbors thought. But Clementine didn't worry about them. She knew she couldn't change their opinions of her, so she just did whatever she wanted. That night, Clementine's group crossed paths with 45-year-old Joseph Thibodeau. The older black man offered them a small cloth bag filled with herbs, roots, and nuts. It was a conjure bag. Thibodeau waxed on about the powers of the bag. He knew what he was doing, too. He saw a group of unruly teens and told them what they wanted to hear. With the bags in their possession, they could do anything without getting caught. Clementine leaned in as he talked. Her eyes lit up, her mind racing with all the possibilities. Thibodeau probably thought the bags would, at worst, embolden the kids to get into a little mischief. Petty theft, maybe some vandalism. He had no way of knowing that Clementine had something much, much worse in mind. Clementine and her friends bought the bags for $3, which wasn't exactly cheap, so we know they must have really wanted them. On their way home, they brainstormed what to do. It's not clear who first made the suggestion, but one way or another, they started discussing the most violent of crimes, murder. According to what she'd say later, Clementine was the instigator here, and she claimed she never would have thought about killing without the persuasion of the conjure bags. But the swift arrival of the idea begs a different question. Was the magic bag the only reason Clementine became a killer? Before we continue with Clementine's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we've done a lot of research for the show. According to Professor Joseph Mazur, luck isn't a tangible thing. Still, we can create something that feels tangible by transferring it to an object, like a talisman or charm. Psychologist Stuart Weiss builds off Mazur. He says that lucky charms create an illusion of control for those who believe in them. Studies have even shown that people perform demonstrably better if they think they have a lucky charm. And interestingly, the more challenging tasks people take on, the higher chance they'll succeed at some of them. So it's a self-confirming cycle. For Clementine and her friends, the conjure bags made them feel invincible, even when murder was thrown out as an idea. They were all apparently on board to test their new invincibility by killing someone. Although that didn't require all five of them to carry out, so they drew straws. 
one by one, they each pulled. Then they held them up to see Clementine had drawn the shortest. She smiled, secretly pleased. It was her idea after all. Now she was the one who'd get to do it. But she didn't strike that night. Clementine decided it was better to go out of town for this part. Luckily, she had a sister in nearby Rain, about 20 miles from Lafayette. She'd stay there while choosing a victim. One night, Clementine waited until her sister was asleep, then went out into the streets dressed as a man. As she wandered, she found an axe on someone's property and stole it. Now armed, she peeked into windows to scope out her potential targets. Most homes were pitch black and she couldn't see a thing. But then she found a home with a light still burning. She went to the window, looked in, and saw Edna Opelousas sleeping inside, her three children close by. Clementine didn't hesitate. She didn't second guess. She quietly slid open the window and clambered through. Then she crept toward the family and considered their sleeping forms for the barest of moments. If she felt any reservations about what she was about to do, they didn't last long. Clementine raised the axe and brought it down onto Edna's head. She died instantly. That's when one of the children woke up and Clementine spun around and hit him on the head too. Then she moved on to his two siblings. She didn't want to leave them as orphans. In her mind, death was the kinder of the two options. When the entire Opelousas family lay dead before her, Clementine took a step back and considered what she'd done. It didn't seem to have any effect on her. She was mostly focused on logistics at this point. Done with the axe, she dropped it on the floor. Next, she rifled through Edna's drawers, stole some of her clothes, and changed out of the men's clothing she'd been wearing. Then she strolled out the door and back to her sister's house. When she returned to Lafayette the next day, Clementine bragged to her friends about what she'd done. Apparently, none of them felt horror. They all just wanted to see if she'd be arrested or if they'd be free to continue murdering people. Days went by, then a week, then months, and no one came for Clementine. It seemed clear enough to her the conjure bags worked, which meant they were free to do whatever they wanted. It was time to pick who to kill next. But they didn't draw straws this time. It seems Clementine volunteered. Now that she'd gotten a taste for murder, she was ready for another helping. This time, Clementine picked her target beforehand, and she chose the buyers in nearby Crowley, another black family. It's not clear why she was only targeting black people, but it was perhaps a product of opportunity. Clementine was black and lived in a predominantly black area. You could argue there was a more sinister side to it, that maybe Clementine chose victims she knew would be a low priority for the authorities, but that theory doesn't line up with Clementine's account. If we're to believe her own words, she fully believed in the protective powers of her conjure bag. She could attack whoever she wanted. For whatever reason, she chose her own community. 
On the night of February 11, 1911, Clementine snuck in the back window of the buyer's house. She brought another axe with her. The teen made her way to the bedroom where the family slept together, and then, like before, she bashed their heads in with the axe. When the town of Crowley woke the next day, they had no idea of the terror that had taken place while they slept. It took two days before neighbors noticed the smell. When police found the buyer's bodies, the news shook the town and others nearby, especially the black community. The brutal death of one family would have been shocking enough, but now two black families had been killed in the same horrific fashion. In the South in the early 20th century, black communities and white police officers generally didn't see eye to eye. But in this instance, there was a rare coming together. No one wanted to see another family murdered. The black community proclaimed they'd do what they could to help police find the killers. They even patrolled the streets for extra security. Everyone was in this together. But they were all looking in the wrong direction. They assumed this was a crazed axe man. Meanwhile, back in Lafayette, Clementine and her friends were giddy with their secret. No one suspected them, not yet anyway. Less than four weeks after the buyer's murders, Clementine struck again. This time in Lafayette, she waited until a local election night when she knew the cops were busy campaigning. Once again, she targeted a black family, the Andresses. Like the buyers, they were killed with an axe while sleeping in their beds. Then the killer dropped the bloody weapon on the floor. But Clementine did something different this time. She decided to stage the bodies. She arranged the Andres parents to look like they were kneeling in prayer against the bed. After that, she fled. When Lafayette learned what happened to the Andrus family, all of southern Louisiana went on high alert. Now three families had been killed by a bloodthirsty specter. And if we believe her story, that specter was Clementine Barnabet. But here's the thing. Even though Clementine later publicly took credit for these murders, it's possible that none of what she said was true. And trust me when I say that's not even the craziest thing about this story. Next, Clementine Barnabet casts suspicion on her own family. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. Everyone in Louisiana was on edge at the start of 1911. They had no idea who might be responsible for murdering several local black families. Then in March of that year, a fourth family was murdered. This time it was the Cassaways. The killer's M.O. was the same as before, death by axe. But there were two significant differences. The first was that one member of the family, Elizabeth Cassaway, was a white woman. The second was that the crime didn't happen in the Lafayette area, but in Texas, more than 100 miles away. In 1911, that was a lot of distance to cover. 17-year-old Clementine Barnabet, who was strapped for cash, would have been hard-pressed to make that trip, so it seems unlikely she could have been involved. But at the time, no one thought the murders were connected anyway. And that's why we need to discuss the possibility that they weren't. Although many eventually believed that Clementine was responsible for these murders, another theory is that multiple axe killers were operating in the same general area around this time. Author Bill James argues that serial killer Paul Mueller, otherwise known as the man from the train, was responsible for the Cassaway murders. He traveled across the country, murdering families who lived along the railroads. He might have actually been behind several killings, eventually attributed to Clementine. Or perhaps the Cassaway murders were copycat crimes committed by someone else entirely. We'll circle back to that idea in a bit, but for now, all you need to know is that you should take these theories with a grain of salt. Okay, so let's get back to the story. This is still mostly Clementine's version of events, but we'll also start to see other townspeople's points of view. Back in Lafayette, Clementine still thought she was in the clear for her crimes, but then the cops came calling. Clementine opened the door and was shocked to see Sheriff Louis Lacoste on the porch. She knew who he was, everyone in Lafayette did, and she was pretty sure she knew why he was there, too. She was caught. But Lacoste asked to speak with Clementine's father, so Raymond Barnabet came over for a chat. That's when the sheriff arrested him. Clementine watched in shock as they carted her dad off. She couldn't believe her luck. Her fingers found the conjure bag in her pocket and squeezed it tight. It really worked. Clementine didn't know what had led the police to suspect her father. Maybe it was his criminal history, or the fact that they lived near the Andresses, or a little of both. It didn't really matter to Clementine, though. She was more than willing to let Raymond take the fall. And her motivations were likely twofold. 
Obviously, she didn't want to get caught herself, but also her dad was an abusive alcoholic. One arrest took care of two pretty big problems. And so Clementine agreed to testify against her father. However, she knew her word wouldn't be enough to put her dad away. So it's possible that she went to her younger brother, Zephyrin. We don't know exactly what, if anything, she said to him, but he ended up supporting her claims. By the time Raymond went to trial in October of 1911, both of his children were witnesses for the prosecution. Clementine took the stand first. She told the jury her dad had left the house around 7 p.m. the night of the Andrus murders and hadn't returned until after daybreak the next day. She laid it on thick. She said Raymond's clothes were covered in blood and brain matter, that he'd forced her to wash them afterward. As if that weren't enough, she also told the jury how he'd bragged about the killing. She said he threatened to off her and her brother if they said anything. Zephyrin backed up his sister's story. He'd also seen the blood-splattered clothes and heard his father yelling about killing the Andresses. Zephyrin told the court he was terrified of his father's retribution. He had no doubt Raymond would make good on his threats and begged the judge to put Raymond away so he couldn't hurt anyone else. Case closed, right? Well, not exactly. But the jury did convict Raymond Barnabet of the Andrus murders and Clementine left the courthouse feeling victorious. The citizens of Lafayette and the surrounding areas were also relieved. As far as they knew, the killer had been caught. They could return to their normal lives. But Clementine wasn't totally in the clear. Despite Sheriff Lacoste leading the charge against Raymond, he suddenly wasn't convinced he had the right guy. After hearing their testimony, he suspected the Barnabet kids actually knew more than they'd let on. His instincts were right. One month later, Clementine struck again. The next murder occurred on November 27th on the very same street that Clementine worked. That morning, the 10-year-old daughter of the Randall family made her way home. She'd spent the previous night at her uncle's. When she walked into her house, she was met with a horrific sight. Her dad, mom, three siblings, and her cousin were all brutally murdered. The poor girl screamed and ran outside, calling for help. At that moment, Clementine just happened to be standing on the porch of her employer, not too far away. Or perhaps she'd been waiting there. Either way, the Randall girl ran right past her, and when she did, Clementine laughed. Now, on the surface, this might seem like a strange reaction, but according to psychiatrist Dr. Gail Saltz, while laughing at death may make other people uncomfortable, it's perfectly normal. The idea of death can cause a lot of anxiety, and sometimes people laugh as a way to cope with those feelings. But in 1911, Clementine's neighbors didn't think about the psychology of grief. They just saw a teenage girl laughing about a brutal murder and thought it was bizarre behavior. She clearly wasn't in her right mind. Clementine likely figured that what other people thought about her didn't matter. After all, she had the conjure bag to protect her. But word of her strange reaction must have reached the police. 
This further stoked Sheriff Lacoste's suspicions. He wasn't prepared to exonerate Raymond by any means, but he did start to think Clementine was in cahoots with her dad. So the sheriff took a closer look at the case, and it became pretty clear something wasn't right. The police searched Clementine's room and found a pile of clothes covered in blood and brain matter, just as she'd claimed her father's clothes had been. When they confronted the teenager with the evidence, she stuck to her story. She had no involvement in the murders. If her clothes were bloody, it was only because they'd been contaminated with her dad's. But no one bought it. So on November 28th, the day after the Randall murders, Sheriff Lacoste arrested Clementine. She didn't understand how this could be happening to her. She'd put all her stock in the conjure bag. It never crossed her mind that it would ever fail her. Still, Clementine refused to tell the cops anything. She maintained a sphinx-like silence. For his part, Sheriff Lacoste was feeling pretty good. He was confident he had the right people in jail. But about two months later, there was another murder after Clementine was in custody, and they kept on coming. On January 18, 1912, in Crowley, Louisiana, Marie Warner and her three kids were found dead, killed by an axe. Two sets of footprints trailed from the house into the mud outside. Dogs were called in to follow the scent, but they soon lost it. Then, three days later, in Lake Charles, Louisiana, the Broussard family was killed. And yes, once again, it was with an axe. But this time, there was a note, a Bible quote, actually, written on the door. It read, when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. And then on the side of the inscription, there was a sign-off that read, Human 5. These new religious aspects sent the press into a frenzy. There was talk of voodoo rituals and whispers that a cult called the Church of Sacrifice was targeting families for human sacrifices. It's not clear if any of this was grounded in fact or if newspapers were trying to drum up sales. They did, however, exaggerate the Lake Charles crime scene, saying the quote was written in blood instead of pencil. In any case, the news spread fast. As she sat in her jail cell, Clementine likely caught wind of these rumors. Inconceivably, authorities believed that she and her father were responsible for these new slayings as well, that they were somehow giving orders to accomplices or followers from behind bars. Whether that was true or not, no one felt safe in Lafayette. Everyone was terrified they'd be next. People took to sleeping with weapons at the ready and staying up to watch over their kids at night. And they were right to be worried, because on February 20th, another Texas family was killed by someone wielding an axe, sending fears into overdrive. But two weeks after that, it seemed like there might finally be some answers, because that's when Clementine finally started talking. Next, Clementine Barnabet confesses. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. In February of 1912, axe murders continued to plague Louisiana and Texas. Authorities believed that 18-year-old Clementine Barnabet and her father were behind the initial attacks. They also thought that the two were giving orders to accomplices to continue the killing spree from where they sat in jail. Meanwhile, the press fueled rumors that Clementine and Raymond were members of a sacrificial cult. And as the seemingly random murders continued, it felt like guessing was all anyone could do to find answers. But then, out of nowhere, Clementine confessed. She'd been silent until then, but something moved her to speak. She admitted to everything she was accused of. She also told police about the voodoo charms she and her friends had bought. From there, the floodgates opened, and she just kept talking. Clementine detailed the murders in rain, how she'd dressed up as a man, stolen an axe, and killed the family whose name she didn't even know. Then she explained why she testified against her father at his trial. Apparently, she'd done so after being persuaded by her brother. However, it also stands to reason that she'd wanted to continue her work for the Church of Sacrifice and had decided the best way to do that was to cast blame on someone else. The police listened to this confession in stunned silence. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. It was almost too good to be true. And maybe it was. As the days went on, Clementine's story kept changing. She continued to claim responsibility for the murders, but the details varied. She'd mention one thing in an interview, then never bring it up again in follow-ups. She'd throw in new information at random. She even claimed that she'd dealt the killing blow for murders that happened while she sat in jail. While some people were quick to believe Clementine was a voodoo cult leader, plenty of others doubted her story. Questions were raised about her state of mind and whether any of what she said was even possible. She was just a teenager after all, and she'd been behind bars during the recent killings. The police also couldn't find a single accomplice to back up her claims. Though her story began with a group of friends, it seemed like Clementine acted alone. And although she said it was real, it's possible the Church of Sacrifice didn't even exist, and Clementine was just sending officers on a wild goose chase. Author Bill James is one of the many who think that Clementine couldn't possibly have done what she said. So then, why would she confess? 
By now, I think we're all familiar with the idea of false confessions. According to psychologist Saul Kassin, interrogation techniques and psychological pressures play a big role in the phenomenon, and young people are the most vulnerable. They can easily be bullied into giving a false confession, especially when stressed, tired, or traumatized. And as we discussed earlier, it's quite possible that Clementine was having a hard time dealing with the death of her neighbors. If that was really the case and Clementine wasn't the murderer, there's a world where she confessed simply because the police believed she was guilty. And they put so much pressure on her that she started to believe it too. Of course, it's also entirely possible that Clementine did everything she said she did. I just wanna give you the full picture. Now, none of this stopped the legal process from moving forward. In April, the DA charged Clementine for the murder of the Randall family, but only that case. Allegedly, the authorities didn't want to risk double jeopardy coming into play. That was standard back in the day. So if the first case didn't work out, he'd move on to the next. Eight days later, on April 12th in San Antonio, Texas, the Barton family was murdered in the exact same way as the Louisiana crimes. They could have been copycat murders, but the crime was pretty much identical to the others. Enough that it made the cops question whether they were right about Clementine or if there really were killers moving between states. About two weeks after that, Clementine's younger brother changed the game again. On April 21st, Zephyrin confessed that it was him and his dad who killed the Andrus family. He said that Clementine and two other men were involved, but only as accessories. Taken at face value, none of these confessions made sense. They all contradicted each other. Still, with almost the entire Barnabet family now in jail, who cared which of them wielded the axe? It seemed like they were all involved in one way or another. Surely the murders would stop, but they didn't. That August, yet another family was attacked, but it was different from all the others. Like usual, the attacker snuck inside the house with an axe. They made for the parents' room and attacked the mother. But by some miracle, her arm was over her head and the attacker didn't notice. So the axe came down on the woman's arm. It was incredibly painful, but it didn't kill her. Instead, she woke up in terror and screamed. She kicked at the attacker, distracting them long enough that her husband woke up and grabbed his gun. He fired a shot at the unknown figure, but he missed. The attacker fled into the night, their identity still unknown. After this incident, authorities finally relented. They admitted the most likely possibility was that there was a band of murderers at large. Of course, that terrified everyone even more. One person could be caught, but a whole group who had evaded capture this entire time? It was too much to bear. Meanwhile, the district attorney prosecuted Clementine and her attorneys fought back. They tried to cast doubt on her ability to even stand trial. Although she'd already confessed to the crimes, her lawyers argued that they had reason to believe she was insane. Much like today's legal system, this meant that she couldn't go to trial until her mental condition was analyzed. Then the court could determine whether she had any legal accountability, both for her accused crimes and her confessions. 
So a judge called a hearing about the matter. Three separate psychiatrists examined Clementine and came back with the same decision. Collectively, the psychiatrists said, quote, We found the subject to be morally depraved, unusually ignorant, and of a low-grade mentality, but not deficient in such a manner to constitute her imbecile or idiotic. That was a fancy and offensive way of saying that Clementine wasn't insane. But their choice of phrasing wasn't professional, and it might indicate some racial bias. In 2020, psychotherapist Tommy Perzichili wrote about racial disparities in the mental health system. In doing so, she pointed out that around 86% of psychologists are white, a number that probably would have been even higher in 1912 when Clementine was examined. Given that the U.S. was only a little over a generation removed from the abolition of slavery, it feels safe to assume that even medical professionals would have had a hard time recognizing bias against a black patient. But putting aside the possibility of implicit bias, we can still see the issue here. If Clementine was traumatized by these murders and not the cause of them, if the interrogation and shock of the events affected her ability to distinguish truth from lie, then the system completely failed her, and the consequences were swift. After the psychiatrists announced their decision, Clementine's trial started the very same day. Things moved quickly from there, and the jury declared her guilty on October 25th. It wasn't a shocking decision. What was a twist was that the judge didn't sentence her to death. Instead, Clementine got life in prison and was promptly sent to Louisiana State Penitentiary. But even then, the killings didn't stop. On November 22nd, another murder occurred in Mississippi. It was a new state, but the same crime. A mother, father, and child all killed with an ax. Without any fact-based leads, police theorized the family were once members of the Church of Sacrifice and were targeted after a falling out. But they were grasping at straws. There was still no evidence that the purported cult had ever even existed. But sometimes facts run a distant second to a good story. For whatever reason, after the Mississippi murders, the killings finally came to an end. Perhaps with Clementine locked up for good, her so-called followers had lost their zeal. Or maybe the real killer decided it was time to pack up and move on. We might never know for sure, because the years haven't offered more evidence one way or the other. And while some of Clementine's life was documented, much has been lost to time. For example, it's unclear what happened to her brother, father, or any of her so-called accomplices after her trial. And Clementine's fate remains murkiest of all. There are rumors she underwent some type of procedure while in custody. The vague way it's described makes it sound like a lobotomy of sorts. The only problem is that procedure wasn't fully developed at the time, so we don't know exactly what she may have gone through. Either before or after that mysterious affair, something changed in Clementine. By all reports, she did relatively well in prison, so much so that after 10 years behind bars, she was released. On August 28, 1923, she walked out the gates of the penitentiary. 
No one knows where she went from there or what she did with her freedom. It's like she just disappeared, taking the truth with her. By Clementine's own account, she was a murderous, violent serial killer. And usually we tend to believe people when they confess to crimes like that. But in this case, the story is so perplexing because we don't know what to think. There's a world where some of it could be true, but many people have big doubts. After all, Clementine confessed to crimes that occurred while she was locked up. She physically couldn't have been the killer. But perhaps that didn't matter. Maybe Clementine knew she was lying, but got some kind of satisfaction out of that. Or perhaps she really did believe everything she said. And everyone else preferred to have someone take the blame rather than admit the killer was still at large. Whatever the truth of the story, it's clear Clementine Barnabet was struggling with demons. And like so many things about her life, we may never know exactly how she dealt with them in the end. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Clementine Barnabet, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dark Bayou, Infamous Louisiana Homicides by Alan G. Gotro and D.G. Hippensteel, as well as The Man from the Train by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Paul Liebeskin, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 